Well, thank you all for coming up and leading us in music, and Percy and Stephanie and Lisa and the ladies singing for us. What a joy. It is always a blessing to gather on the Lord's Day and worship. Tonight, we do have, as Frank said, our membership class, and we have our largest class ever signed up since we started as a church. And so we are looking forward to inducting some new members in a few weeks and probably seeing some baptisms, maybe right there in the pool for the first time after our church service later this month. So be praying for them and I'll welcome any current members if they'd like to go back through the class. We do update it. We've added about an hour of content and you're always welcome to come back through, meet some of the new folks and and go through the class again to just get a refresher. This morning, let's continue in our worship. Turn to God's Word, Romans chapter 3. This great book of Romans, the highest mountain peak, I think, in the New Testament when it comes to theology. Probably the Gospel of John is very close. But most will agree that Romans packs a lot of theology, a lot of content into a short letter that Paul wrote to the church in Rome. And we have been making our way through this epistle to the Romans. And you really could call it the gospel to the Romans. It is the gospel expanded, the gospel opened up, the gospel explained from the first verse to the last verse. And of course, Paul will get to the application part at the end of Romans. He'll tell us how to apply all of this doctrine. But doctrine is important. You need to understand what it is the Bible teaches, what it is that you are to believe as a Christian, And when you are a Christian, you can't deny the truth of God's word. You have to accept it. You take it in and you believe it and you live it out in your life and you tell other people that truth. And so that's what Paul's mission is here. He's writing this to the Romans. He's been out planting churches and he's going to see Rome. He didn't plant the church there, but he's going to see the church there. And he writes this letter and he wants them to know exactly what the gospel is. And he's going to be responding to a lot of teaching uh, that comes against the gospel. A lot of false teaching, uh, which we'll look at a bit of here today. Let me read to you Romans 3, 1, 3, 1 through 8. I'll read all this paragraph. But we're looking specifically today at 5 through 8. Title of the sermon, The Righteousness of God Demonstrated. 3, 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then, if some did not believe? Does their unbelief abolish the faithfulness of God? May it never be. Rather, let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written that you may be justified in your words and overcome when you are judged. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is the God who inflicts wrath unrighteous? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, Let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. How far are you willing to go to justify your sin? Even as a Christian, you might ask, how far am I willing to go in my own Christian life to justify the sin I commit? 
And we know that unbelievers will go to great extent, to a great extent to justify their sin. Some will say, I didn't know it was wrong. But Paul's answered that in Romans 1. He said that even the Gentiles who don't have the Bible still know right from wrong. And God has made himself clearly evident to them. He's put it in their heart. He's made sure in creation that they could see there is a creator and they must honor and glory. Other people today will say it's someone else's fault. It's someone else's fault that I have sinned, that I continue to commit sin. And Paul will address that later in Romans as well. Some people say, well, I can't help it. I was born this way. That's just the way I was born. I'm a sinner. And the Bible says, you know what? You're right. You are a sinner. Everyone's a sinner. You must be born again is the answer. Just because you were born a sinner doesn't forever make you a sinner. You can be born again and be redeemed. But of course, we know a lot of sins that people do, they choose to do. They weren't born with a certain sin stamped upon them that they have to commit the rest of their life. They must trust in the Lord Jesus. Well, here today, Paul addresses another common way that people justify their sin. They say, God is unjust. God is unjust to blame me for my sin. God is unfair. Sometimes you'll just hear it simply said, that's not fair. In our culture, we love that phrase, that idea, that's not fair. In fact, most of weight loss marketing is all about trying to convince you that it's not your fault, that it's not your fault. It's not your fault that you've gained weight and you need their wonderful supplements, their wonderful workout plan. Well, this is human nature to say it's not fair. You remember what Adam and Eve said? What did Adam say to the Lord when the Lord came looking for him? It was this woman that you gave me. That's why I did it. Which is this another way of blaming God. He blames Eve, but ultimately he's blaming God. You gave her to me. You created her. She's your problem. There are many ways that people seek to justify. But here we're looking today at how the Jew, and even many people today still, seek to justify their sin by saying that God is unfair, that God is not just. This comes in a list of objections that Paul has been dealing with. Remember in chapter 1, he he told us that he's going to proclaim the gospel in this letter. That's his mission. And the gospel is about the righteousness of God coming to the believer through Christ. The righteousness that Christ earned as he lived a perfect life. He's the only one who's ever done that. He died on the cross for sinners. And when you believe in him, that righteousness gets transferred to your account. And Paul said that's the only way of salvation. That's in chapter 1 verse 17. Then he went into the Gentiles and how they're sinners. And they just act like they don't care. But they really do know there is a God. And then he started addressing the Jews in chapter 2. And he started just addressing the fact that they sin as well. Then he went into the law and how they proclaim the law. They have the law. They say they know the Bible. But they sin by breaking the law over and over. And then he went into circumcision and how they can't trust in that. And they can't trust in their covenant that God has with Abraham. Yes, that is a covenant with God. The problem is they don't have faith like Abraham had. And now he's continuing to deal with the Jewish objector, this Jewish person who keeps saying, yeah, but, but if we, get, if we grant all of what you said, there's still a problem with your theology. So in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, 
he is now dealing with four main objections. We looked at the first two last week. Verse 1 was, what advantage has the Jew? And Paul said, God blesses the Jew by giving his word. He blesses his people by giving his word. That is a blessing. That is a great blessing. The next objection in verse 3, if some did not believe, if some Jews don't believe, does their unbelief abolish the faithfulness of God? God made a promise to save Israel, to restore Israel someday. And some don't believe in Paul's day, and some don't believe today, and and some haven't believed, many haven't believed for 2,000 years, and the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And Paul says, God always keeps his promises. God always keeps his promises. So he dealt with those first two objections. Now the Jewish objector continues questioning Paul, and Paul gives us these questions. Remember last week I told you this is a difficult paragraph. It's a difficult section. Some say the most difficult in Romans because it's hard to see where's Paul talking and where's this objector speaking because Paul's repeating his words to us. The easiest way to look at it is just to see the objection and then the answer is usually in the next verse. So verse 1 has the objection, 2 has Paul's answer. Verse 3 had the objection, 4 had Paul's answer. 5 has the objection, 6 has Paul's answer, Seven has the fourth objection, and it's interesting what he does in verse 8, but we'll get there. Eventually, he, he does give an answer. Their condemnation is just. So the Jews' objections now are getting more sinful. Originally, it's just, what, what advantage? If circumcision doesn't matter, having the Bible doesn't matter, then what's the advantage of the Jew? Now, it's getting to the point where they're willing to drag God into the argument just to save themselves from being called a sinner. So let's look at these final two objections, which at the end of the day just demonstrate God's righteousness. It just shows that God is righteous. And so first of all, let's look at God's righteousness demonstrated in his judgment of the world. Here's the objection though, verse 5. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? So Paul is now posing this question that he knows his Jewish audience is going to be thinking. Either they're visiting the church in Rome to see what these Christians are all about, or maybe a a Roman Christian is going and evangelizing to their Jewish family, or or maybe some people in the synagogue are really upset about this gospel. And so he wants to lay it out clearly to the Jew here in the book, and he knows this objection is coming. If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Now, this comes out of the quote Paul used back in verse 4. Remember, he he quoted there David's psalm. When David is repenting in Psalm 51 and verse 4, if you go back to Romans 3, 4, that you may be justified. This is David talking about his sin, talking about his repentance. It's that you may be justified, speaking of God, in your words and overcome when you are judged. In other words, David has said that God has showed himself righteous by everything he prophesied to David. He told David through Nathan the prophet that David was a sinner and that certain things are going to happen in David's life as a result of that. David realizes he did wrong. He repents and he acknowledged that God is righteous. That God is just for telling David that he is a sinner and judging him accordingly. Now, the question arises in the Jewish mind, okay, well, let's talk about that. 
let's talk about it. If God is going to be vindicated, if God is going to be justified in the sense of shown his righteousness to all the world, then isn't our sin helping God out? Isn't the fact that we're unrighteous, the Jew says? Paul, if we follow your logic, Paul, isn't our unrighteousness demonstrating God's righteousness? Let's look at this word unrighteous. You might recall back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul said that if you don't have the righteousness of God, you have the wrath of God. There's only two things that everyone has right now at this moment in the world. They either have the righteousness of God because they're in Christ, or the wrath of God abides on them. The wrath of abandonment and the, and the future wrath that is coming at the judgment. And so he's been talking about how the wrath since 118 is against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. And so we looked at that word as it applies to Gentiles, but it also applies to the Jew. Unrighteousness means wickedness, injustice, immorality. It's a general word for anything that is contrary to God's will. We could just say any sin is unrighteous, whether it's a thought, whether it's an action, whether it's a sin of omission where you just ignore your responsibilities that God has given you. That is unrighteousness. It's an act of assault against God's moral order. What he has said that is right and wrong, you simply go against that. God is righteous. God is perfect. And when you don't follow the Lord and what he tells us to do and what he tells us to believe, you're acting unrighteous. Remember in John 3.19, it says, This is the judgment. Jesus said, The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. That's the problem, is that men love unrighteousness. Men love the darkness. Unbelievers love to wallow in their sin, like a pig in the mire. Just loves to wallow in the mud. Now notice, Paul is including himself here. He hasn't been doing that, but suddenly here in verse 5, our unrighteousness. He knows he was unrighteous. He knows he was a sinner in need of a Savior. He's believed in Christ, and now he can look back and say, our unrighteousness. I was unrighteous before Christ came and made me righteous before the Lord. He understands. He understands he was a sinner in need of a Savior. Now, contrary to mankind's unrighteousness, God himself is perfectly righteous. God himself is perfectly right. I'm giving you the definitions to these words so we can put that sentence back together and understand what the Jew is saying. Let's look at what it means that God is perfectly righteous. That's an attribute of God, a perfection of God. It's who he is. He is righteous. It means that he upholds the, his glory and his honor and his own name in every circumstance. And he does that by an unwavering commitment to doing what is right. He upholds his glory. He upholds his honor. He upholds his name in every circumstance. And he is always righteous when he does anything. When God judges sinners, this unwavering commitment to doing what is right is on display. Every time God judges, right now, when things happen to sinners, and that's part of God's judgment, He is showing His righteousness. But particularly in the final judgment. When the, everything is on display and all sinners will be judged outside of Christ for their sin, God's righteousness will be shown to all. 
And that will show his perfect righteousness even to the person who says they don't believe in him. So if God is righteous and holy, what does he have to do? He has to judge sinners. God has to judge sinners. He can't sit back and say, you know, I'm going to be a nice God. I'm going to take mankind's idea of niceness and just let all the sinners go to heaven. You know what that's called? That's called the doctrine of universalism. It's a false teaching. It says that everyone is going to heaven someday. It doesn't matter what you do, from Adolf Hitler to Mother Teresa to everyone else, everyone is going to heaven someday. It doesn't matter what you believe. That's universalism. That's wrong. That's not the God of the Bible. You know what God says? That he will judge every sin that you've ever committed unless you're in Jesus Christ. Unless Christ is your Savior. Outside of Christ, every sin, all it takes is one little sin. Is there such a thing as a little sin? One, we used to say, somebody who steals bubble gum from the, from the store will go to hell forever and ever. One little sin sends you to hell forever and ever outside of Christ. And that's righteous. Because God has a moral order, and He has set it up, and He is righteous, and He is an eternal God. How can you ever pay off a sin against an eternal being? If you sin against the store owner here by stealing something, you can pay a fine and pay it off. You can go to jail for a time and pay it off. If you take all the money or or, or kill many people, you can pay it off by going to prison for life. Used to, they would just take your life and um, do capital punishment. With an eternal God, you cannot pay off a debt owed. You are sinning against an eternal being. And you're not just sinning against the world, but you're sinning against God and who he truly is. Well, we can't make God into our own thinking. We can't make God into our own God that Christianity, maybe even in America, thinks today a nice God who will let everyone go to heaven. God is righteous. And we want righteous judges, don't we? Don't we want righteous judges? I mean, that was a huge problem and still is in California. They just let everybody out of the jails during COVID. Just go. Just let everybody out except the worst offenders. We don't want judges who are just willing to let criminals go free. Well, God is not a God who lets everyone go free. You must trust in Christ and you will go to heaven. That is God's righteousness. Mankind tries to think of an unrighteous God who lets sinners go free. They would rather make God unrighteous, in other words, in their minds, just to conceive of all of us going to heaven. That would make God unrighteous. That is not the God. Don't ever twist your thinking like that. When you start hearing people say, there is no hell, everyone's going to heaven. There is no hell. People will say there's only a short time in hell, annihilationism. There's just a little short time, maybe a hundred years, a thousand years, and that's it. That's twisting the Bible. That's making God into someone else that he is not. Don't let that kind of thinking enter into your belief system. Well, here's how Paul puts all this together. The Jews of his day were twisting all of this, trying to get out of the judgment. And they were saying, if being an unrighteous sinner helps show God's righteousness at the judgment, then isn't that a good thing? Isn't it good that I sin because God gets to judge my sin in front of everyone and it shows his righteousness? They were saying, come on, Paul, come on. You you say we're sinners. If that's true, then aren't we helping God out? Aren't we giving God a helping hand? Aren't we making God look good? So some people 
will sin and will sin and we'll all go there to the judgment and God will judge us all and he will look more righteous because of it. Do you see what they're saying? Doesn't our sin give God an opportunity to show himself in a better light? Now we think today, well, that, that doesn't happen, but it still does. It does. People will say, well, it's okay that I sin. The grace will abound even more. The grace of God will abound even more. It's okay if I sin. Nothing bad happened now. And even later, if God brings it back up to me, it's all right at the judgment. It will make him look better. Now, Paul puts their objection another way. Look at the next question. What they're really trying to get at is this. Here it is in a nutshell. Is the God who inflicts wrath unrighteous? And he's so concerned about speaking this way. He says, in parentheses, I'm speaking in human terms. You see that? He, he's so concerned about it. Now, notice this type of questioning. It's out of bounds. It's so sinful that Paul doesn't even want people to associate it with his own words. This is not revelation from God. He's saying, this is how mankind speaks. This is how sinners speak. And the whole point here is that the Jews are trying to prove they're not sinners. They don't like the word sinner. Remember, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. Sinners were the worst of the worst in the Jewish society. They don't want to be called a sinner. And so is the God who inflicts wrath unrighteous? That's really the issue. They're calling God unrighteous for judging people. Here's how you hear it today. I can't believe in a God like that. I can't believe, have you heard this? That God would send anyone to hell. He's a loving God. He loves us. I mean, after all, all those preachers on TV says he loves me and wants the best for my life. God would never send anyone to hell and judge them, would he? Well, this is the way that the Jews were willing to twist it just to get out of saying that they're sinners. And Paul says, look, what you're doing is you're calling God unrighteous. Unrighteous. And here's his answer. Verse 6, may it never it's the strongest possible Greek negative. It's certainly not, Paul says. King, King James Version, God forbid it. It cannot happen. Absolutely will not happen that God is unrighteous. They knew that. The Jews knew that God was perfectly righteous. But what they're doing is they're trying to make themselves equal with God. Well, hey, God's unrighteous. He's punishing sinners for making him look better. God must be unrighteous. Paul, your whole gospel doesn't work. It's not even logical. Paul says, certainly not. May it never be. This is a phrase he uses 10 times in the book of Romans. It's the strongest way in Greek to say, absolutely no way, never, ever, ever going to happen. Why? For otherwise, how will God judge the world? How will God judge Gentiles? Is what he's getting at. And now to a modern atheist, if you say this, this is, this is my proof that God is, is righteous. How will God judge the world? The modern atheist is going to shrug their shoulders. That doesn't prove anything to them. The unbeliever, they want you to go into this long, drawn-out argument. And you might have to go to other scriptures. But to the Jew, this was a perfect argument. They had the oracles of God. They knew who God was and that he had already said he would judge the world. And they were celebrating the fact that he would judge Gentiles. Yes, we are in the covenant with Abraham, so we're fine. We're so glad, God, you're going to judge those Gentiles. 
They've been attacking us. They've been trying to wipe us off the face of the earth since Abraham's day. And we are glad you're going to judge the Gentiles. 100% they were for it. So all Paul has to say is, God is not unjust. Otherwise, he could never judge the Gentiles. Only a just judge can judge the world. And that, that would have backed down very quickly. The nation, the Israelites, the Jews would have said, no way. God must judge the Gentiles. Only a righteous judge, though, Paul says, can judge righteously. So Paul says, you know that God is righteous because he will judge the Gentiles, which means he's never unrighteous, always holy, always just, always doing what is right in every circumstance, which means, by the way, Jews, he certainly will judge you as well. He's just wrapping back around, coming back to the Jews. Yes, he'll judge the Gentiles, but he'll judge you as well. He is righteous. He is not impartial. No one is going to escape the judgment outside of Christ. You can't trust in your heritage. You can't trust in your father and your grandparents and whatever happened when you were young, but you weren't actually a believer, whether you were raised in the church or baptized at an early age. If you weren't a believer in Christ and are still not, you have no hope. No hope outside of Christ. Well, God's righteous, righteousness is demonstrated in his judgment of the world. That's a fact. And that's all Paul had to say to correct that argument. Now let's go to the second objection. The second one. God's glory is demonstrated even in his judgment of the Jews. Even in his judgment of the Jews. Yes, they would say the world, that's wonderful. But not the Jews. They're not going to be judged, are they? And he is going to say... Not only is God just and right, but his glory is shown forth when he judges the Jews. Here's the objection. And this is taking it a step further. Verse 7. But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? You can just feel the attempt here to try to get out of the judgment. Why, 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 Paul? Why are you calling us sinners? It's almost like you're saying, Paul, we can't save ourselves. It's almost as if you're saying we need a savior, like the whole Old Testament had said. And they supposedly knew it, but they seem to have forgotten it or skipped over the difficult parts. Well, this objector is doing all he can to try to make himself the measure of truth. And in essence, make God out to be a liar. That's what happens when mankind pulls their theology down to man's level to make it palatable, to make it acceptable. They're essentially changing the picture that the Bible presents of God. Now, you can't change the Bible, but they just don't preach the Bible and preach their own thinking about God. And that makes people think, well, that must be what the Bible says. The preacher's up there. He's he's telling us that everybody's going to heaven. He's telling us that the God would never be like that. The God is kind. The God is nice. He's my best friend. He's my homeboy. Nothing about wrath. Nothing about hell. Nothing about judgment. That's all we've been looking at for how long now? A couple of months? You think that's important to Paul's gospel? Three chapters of judgment? But people are willing to go to great lengths to justify their conscience. To justify their sin. Even to say what is being said here. If through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory. The Jew does not want to be called And here's basically what they're saying. Look, Paul, okay, if I'm a liar, like you just said back in verse four, that all men are liars and we're included in that as Jews. 
If I'm a liar and all my lies go to help God's glory to increase all the more, should I go free? Shouldn't I be set free at the judgment? After all, I'm really doing God a favor. I am continuing to lie more and more so that God's glory may abound more and more. You see how wicked this is? It's saying, let me go and sin as much as I can so I can enhance God's reputation by sinning all the more. In other words, I've done God a favor. Not just I've done God a favor in the past, but this is more wicked. That, that's what he said earlier. I'm helping God show his righteousness. Now he's saying, in the future, I'm going to go and sin all the more so God's glory can... They're really trying to make Paul's gospel sound foolish. They're trying everything to make God, Paul's gospel sound foolish. Look, Paul, if you're calling us sinners and we're Jews, look, we'll just go sin all the more, and that'll make God look really good to the whole world. That's wicked. That's vile to even speak that way in a serious tone. Look at the level that mankind is willing to go to to justify their sin. And look at this wrangling over words. Four levels of objections here. And it's just really drilling down, 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 down. Everything Paul says, they want to turn around and say, well, but what about this? Next thing he answers, they want to take his words there and keep wrangling over words. That's what false teachers do. They just wrangle over words. And then when you try to point them to Scripture, they don't want to talk about Scripture. They'll cut you off if you're talking to them in person. It may not be a false teacher. It may just be a believer who believes wrongly and they're continuing in that line of thinking and they'll cut you off and not go to Scripture. Paul takes them back to the Bible. He takes them to Scripture or he uses biblical logic based on Scripture. In this case, he's talking to unbelievers and he wants them to know that they are sinners in need of a Savior. But they're willing to wrangle over words to the point of calling God unjust and now saying they should go sin all the more to make God look good. Here's how the scholar Barry Horner puts it. Paul's antagonist now extends the argument to yet a lower level of reason depravity. For to suggest in verse 5 that sin should be tolerated so as to reflect God's righteousness is one thing. But then in verse 7, to recommend the propagation of sin so that God's greater glory and goodness be displayed is to sink to an all-time low. What they're doing here is they're taking these half-truths. They're taking something Paul said, and they're, they're making a deduction that's not right. They're making a deduction that's not based on Scripture. They're taking a truth out of the Bible that God is perfectly righteous, and then they're twisting it by saying, well, we'll just sin all the more. God will be glorified by our sin. That is true. He will be glorified at the judgment, particularly by sinners. But they're twisting that truth. Go forward to Romans chapter 9. And we'll, we'll see this in detail when we come here. Romans nine nineteen though, he makes a statement. And this comes up a lot when you're talking about election. And that's the discussion he's going through in Romans 9. Why did God create people Knowing they would never believe in him, why did God create them? Now, we don't have time to get into all the details of this passage, but let me just read it to you and make a few comments. Romans nine nineteen. You will say to me then, so again, he's dealing with these objectors. Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? And here's Paul's answer. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? 
Will the thing molded say to the molder, why did you make me like this? So he quotes from the Old Testament there. Or does not the potter have authority over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? The point is God has created mankind. And does God not have the free will? We talk about man's free will a lot. But what about God's free will? Does God not have absolute free will to choose who he's going to save and to choose who he's not going to save? He goes on with the argument here. And what if God, so this ties back into Romans 3. What if God, wanting to demonstrate his wrath, so there's that word demonstrate that we saw in Romans 3, 5. What if God wanted to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, that he endured with much patience vessels of wrath, having been prepared for destruction? The idea is, They're allowed to live even though they are sinners and they refuse to believe in Christ. They refuse to come to God. They dishonor God. They sin against Him. And sometimes you wonder, how can God let them live? Paul says here, what if God endured with much patience vessels of wrath having been prepared for destruction and in order that He might make known the riches of His glory? You see what he's saying here? The riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy? which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, Paul says, believers, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Here's the argument there. What if God is willing to let them go on and continue in their sin to present that black backdrop, the backdrop that Steve Lawson, I think we just heard some Steve Lawson there. Steve Lawson will tell us the black backdrop behind the diamond. You see the diamond all the more. Let's have Steve Lawson come in and visit with us today. I just quoted him. He's, he's the guy that I first heard say that. You put The jeweler takes the, the black, is it velvet, felt, puts it behind the diamond so that it shines all the more. All the sin that mankind commits. All the, the sin that mankind commits. Why does God endure that? Because we see his glory and his grace and his mercy and his power all the more when he saves a sinner. It's for his glory. Everything's for his glory, isn't it? Is that really hard to to understand? Everything is for God's glory. Even the sinner being judged will ultimately glorify God. And he's a good and just God. But everything that happens will glorify God. We must understand that. And so the Jew is picking up on this. This idea that it will demonstrate. The judgment of sinners will demonstrate God's glory. And they're twisting it. Back in Romans 3, they're twisting it. And they're going on to say, look at verse 8, Romans 3, 8. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. So this continues their argument. Paul's not answering it yet. It's such a, a long argument here that he puts it in another long sentence. And he even tells us that some people are saying he himself teaches this. Really, the objector is reaching the bottom of the barrel. He's, compl- he's saying, Paul, you are teaching complete antinomianism. Some will say, let us do evil that good may come. In other words, hey, Since sin brings about the glory of God all the more, we can sin it up as much as possible and make God look great. And Paul says, even even people say that about our teaching. 
That's so sinful and wicked. Doing evil so that good may come. Just an excuse for the sinner to get, try to get out of their sin. God's not fooled. God's not fooled. It doesn't escape his notice. This is what the world does. This is what the world claims. They say this month, in the month of June, we celebrate Pride Month. Because we care about something good. We care about love. We care about equality. And it's very interesting. It's called Pride Month because pride comes before the fall, the Bible says. Pride is a sin, the Bible says. So they care about pride, all right. But, but a Christian should never try to excuse sin by saying that it's really something good. That the end justifies the means. Here's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 5. Woe, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. They're flipping it. The thing that's evil, they're saying that's good. And the thing that is good, they're saying is evil. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and understanding. Doesn't matter if it's Paul's day or today. Jews in his day or Gentiles today. To say that something good is evil. And especially today we have this people saying evil is good. That is such a sin. It's twisting God's moral order. It's saying something about God. It's saying that he's not a good God, that he's an unjust God, and that we can just sin all the more. Let's go back to the parentheses. Paul puts in a parentheses, and he's inserting this little statement here that tells us that these false accusers have said this about him. They had been hearing what Paul's been preaching on the gospel, and they twisted it to make him look bad. They twisted it to make him look bad. We'll see his teaching on this in chapter 5. Go to chapter 5, verse 20. He comes back around to talk about the law in chapters 5, 6, and 7. And in 520, he says, Now the law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So they, they hear that in his preaching, and then they take it and they run with it. But look what he says, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would remain through righteousness to eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. The purpose is not so we can keep on sinning. The purpose is so that God could show us his grace. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Here's his answer. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. There it is again. May it never happen that we think that way. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? May it never be that we try to make those excuses for our sin like the unbelieving Jew did back in chapter 3, Paul says. May it never be that even as believing Christians, we think it's okay if we sin because it gives God one more chance to forgive us. If you're Christ, God will forgive you. But you should never twist that and make that so that you think it's okay to continue in sin. Well, people were twisting Paul's teaching. They were saying that he taught antinomianism, which means no law, which means now we're free. We're completely free in Christ. We can do whatever we want. And the Jews heard that and they were slandering Paul with it. Literally, the Greek word is blasphemeo, blaspheming him. They wanted to defame him. They wanted him to look bad in other people's eyes so that no one would listen to his message. And the Jews would have loved this. That 
teacher, Paul, is coming into the synagogue. He's talking to the Jews and he ought not to be listened to because he is saying, let us do evil so that good may come. Well, here's what Paul says as his final answer. And it's really not much of an answer compared to what he's already been doing. Every time an objection came, he gave an answer. He doesn't do that this time. He just says, their condemnation is just. That's all that needs to be said. Or to put it strongly, King James, whose damnation is just. Those who twist Paul's teaching, those who slander him, he says, are condemned. Not because they've just insulted Paul, but they've twisted the truth of God. Just to justify themselves, their condemnation is just. It's right that God is going to judge them. They are proving that they're unbelievers by saying such things. That we can just sin all the more and make God look good. John Calvin said, let us therefore bear the slanderous abuse by the ungodly of the truth which we preach. And let us not cease on this account to guard constantly the simple confession of it, since it has sufficient power to crush and disperse their falsehoods. You see what he's saying there is, whenever people come at the gospel and they try to twist it and they try to attack it, just keep proclaiming the gospel. It will condemn them. The word of God will condemn the sinner. You don't have to get into wrangling over words forever and ever. You don't have to prove all the silly little things they say are wrong. Just proclaim the word. Just go to the Bible. It will condemn them. Their condemnation is just. And the point that Paul has continued to make from from 3.1 all the way through verse 8, that God will judge everyone that is outside of Christ, whether Jew or Gentile. God is an impartial judge. All sinners will be judged and sent into the eternal punishment of hell. Without Christ, he's telling us the bad news here. Without Christ, we're all doomed. Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Sinners are punished for their sin in hell. And eventually, in verse 21 of this chapter, he's going to tell us the good news. But he has one more section that we'll look at next week where he summarizes all that the Old Testament has to say about sinful mankind, about total depravity. The point is, God is righteous and just to judge sinners. We need a Savior. There's no hope without a Savior. There's no righteousness without Christ. You've got to have Christ as your Savior to have His righteousness. Without Him, your sin will be judged. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew uh, who grew up with the Bible. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile who grew up going to church every single day of your life. You got baptized before you got out the womb. It doesn't matter because without Christ, you're headed to hell. There's only one hope, Jesus Christ. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Or as another old hymn says, Rock of Ages, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demand. Could my zeal no respite? No. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me Savior or I die. We need a Savior. Paul has spent 
a huge chunk already of Romans telling us how important it is. If you're already in Christ, trust in Him, continue to grow in your faith, continue to learn of Him, study this great book, read Romans every week. It'll help you as you come in and hear the sermons on it. And let's be grateful for what God has done for us. Every one of us is mentioned somewhere in Romans 1 through 3. Every one of us. We were those people. And hopefully we can say, all of us, that Christ has saved us. And if you can't, trust in him. Maybe you'll be the one baptized with a new group out here after God has changed your heart and saved you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time this morning in your word. It is often serious and and convicting to hear a message on judgment, to hear a message on condemnation, to get into all this wrangling over words that, that false teachers and unbelievers will do. But Lord, you sharpen our minds, you sharpen our hearts, you help us to understand the truth. And so let us be lights in the world. As people come to us with excusing their sin, as people try to impugn your honor, your name, help us to show them the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we do pray. Amen.